0: welcome to the redemption church podcast we exist to become witnesses to god's new creation so that every man woman and child has a daily encounter with jesus we believe that as a family of servant missionaries we are empowered to participate in god's story because of the good news that king jesus is making all things new take your bibles please and turn to luke chapter 15 luke chapter 15 we're in the midst of of a series that we're just calling rc basics last week we looked at story and the importance of having a right story and this week we want to look at gospel and what the gospel actually is from a very familiar story whether you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church you probably heard this story the parable that jesus told of the prodigal son have you heard this story before Heard about the prodigal? I mean, it's even in our culture, the word prodigal. He's a prodigal. He's a prodigal son. And what I actually want to say is that this story is not about just one son. Jesus, when we walk through this story, is actually going to say it's two sons. And interestingly, the one son that Jesus actually ends the story with is the son that we never actually do business with. And I think in the South, in the Christian context in which we find ourselves, we should be paying attention very closely to the eldest son. So what I want to do is this. I'm going to walk through uh, Luke chapter 15, kind of walk through the story with you, make some notes about the story, and then I want to draw three, make three points about that story. So Luke chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus <clears throat> continued... And I believe I'll have this all on the screen as well for you if you want to just follow along on the screen. There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, let's stop there. The original hearers, when they heard Jesus just introduce this story, would have been totally astounded. They would have been like totally overwhelmed. Why? Because. For a son to receive an inheritance is normal. In fact, the eldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the next son would get a third of the inheritance. And so it wasn't the fact that he was asking for his inheritance, but the fact that they were so astounded was that he was actually asking for his inheritance while the father was alive. The father hadn't died yet. And just like in our culture, you don't get your inheritance until your parents die, and then you get your inheritance. In fact, one commentator who knows the times says this, to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish his father dead. Like that is the implication of the son asking for his inheritance is saying, Father, I just wish you were not even alive. He didn't want his father. He wanted the things of his father. In fact, it's seemingly that his relationship with his father is only a means to an end. And if this was unheard of, what happens next is even more unheard of. In that culture, in that time, if your son came up to you and said, I wish you were dead, give me inheritance, that's what the father would normally do. Just cut him out of the inheritance, kick him out, just destroy him and beat him and say, get out of here, you're out. But what does the father actually do? And, you know, we don't know for sure. But more than likely, the father, his wealth was tied up in his lands. We don't understand that very well. Because our wealth is tied up to a bank account, not to a land account. So what would the father actually have to do to get that money for his son? He'd actually have to go sell his lands. And this would take some time, and so the father, you know, not just experiencing the worst thing any human can experience, which is rejected love, by the way, he's not only experiencing this rejected love from his son that he loves, but he's actually having to take all this time to sell all of his property, to get all this money, so that he can actually give it to his son. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country, began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him Anything. So, in this little section, we see the younger brother just wastes his fortune. He goes off and squanders his money. He goes out and buys the Tesla and buys the big car and has all the big parties. And eventually, all of a sudden, all of his money has run out. And what does he do? The only place he can go to find a place to actually live and to work is in two very anti-Jewish places. A Gentile who has pigs. This is the lowest of the low. This is a Jewish reader would see this to be the worst job possible. I don't want to make a comment, but just think of what you think the worst job is in America. That's what this person was experiencing. All the fun came to a screeching halt. A severe famine came. And he wants just to eat what the pigs are eating. Can you just feel the weight of this younger son? And so what does he do? In verse 17, he comes to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. When the son is literally down in the mud, he comes to his senses. As we'll see in a few moments, this idea of coming to his senses is this idea of repentance. And he comes up with a plan. He's going to place himself at the complete disposal of his father, He recognizes he has no rights. He recognizes he has no standing before the Father. He can't come back to the Father and say, I'm your son, please let me back in. Why? Because he had already taken his inheritance and that was his sonship. And so what does he ask? He asks to be a hired man. In In the Jewish world, this is the lowest of the lowest. You could be family, you could be a servant or a serf who lived with the actual family, or you could actually be a hired servant who actually didn't even get to live on the estate, on the household, actually had to live in town. And this is what he asked to be. Not family member, not a servant, but the lowest of the lowest, to be a hired, waged worker. So the son has this plan to pay back what he has done to the father. But verse 20, the middle of it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to your servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. One, the father is just waiting. He's just waiting for the son to return. Jen and I are watching a TV show on Apple TV called Mosquito Coast. Anyone seen this yet? It's, I really enjoy this show. And one of the episodes we just saw is the daughter has run away from the family. And the brother is like, Dad, how are we going to get her back? And he's like, just wait. She's, we'll be looking for her and we'll wait for her to come back. And what does she do? She's coming back. And here is this father just again looking and waiting for his son. And what does the father actually do? he runs. That may seem like nothing to us, but again, the culture is everything. Children ran, women ran, but you know who never ran in a Jewish culture? Men. Men did not run. Middle Eastern patriarchs refused to run. They would have to bare their legs in a sense. And this was culturally humiliating. And yet this is what happens. The father has been waiting for the son and is willing to humiliate himself and to do something that no other Jewish patriarch would do. And he runs to his son and he kisses him. And the son begins to whip out his restitution plan, it's you know, PowerPoint. And so I'm going to pay you all back. I just want to be a hired servant. And in the midst of all that, of the father just says, son, shut up. You don't need to pay anything back. In fact, I'm going to bring you the best robe. Someone go get the ring for him to show that he's royalty and part of this family. And someone go kill a fattened calf because we are going to celebrate because my son has come to his senses and has repented and is coming to me. And that all seems like a great story. But that's only half of it. Because there's a second act. There's not only a lost younger brother, but there's a second act that Jesus is going to continue about the act to the lost elder brother. Meanwhile, in verse 25, the older son was in the field. Where he should be, right? When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? They answered, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother ran into the party excited and gave his brother a hug. And in fact, the exact opposite. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. It's interesting the son becomes angry over what? A calf, a cow. Have you gotten angry over a cow recently? But the calf's a big deal. It's a big deal because of what it meant. He didn't know what was going on, and when he finds out what is going on, he does not celebrate the brother coming home. In fact, he goes the opposite way. He becomes this angry, bitter, resentful Brother. And to not go into the Father's feast is absolute disrespect. And to know that this was a community, like a town party. When you, filled a fat, when you killed a fattened calf and you invited everybody to come because all the food had to be eaten so it wouldn't get wasted. So it wasn't just a party for his family. This was everyone in the town coming to celebrate the goodness of the son coming home. And the very fact that the brother, older brother, never comes in is an absolute disrespect to him. So the elder brother then protests. The father went out and pleaded with the son. He said to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property, With prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? The older brother is saying, Father, how dare you use your wealth that is my wealth like this? He's in a sense saying, I have some right. I have some say over your things. He's saying, I have obeyed you all of my life and I can't even get a goat. In fact, he insults his father by the word, look. In the Greek, this idea of look is like this tone of disrespect that he's saying, I can't believe that you would even do this. And so the elder brother becomes angry, disrespects his father, believes he has rights over his father's things, and refuses to go to the party. And what does the father conclude this story with? His love. My son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead and is alive again, and he was lost, and he is now found. Even after all the insults, the father asked the brother to come. And notice the father addresses this son affectionately. It says, son, my son, this term of endearment, technon, child, my child. And he assures him that he is always with him. And everything that is his, is his. The son knew that he would inherit the farm. The father knew that everything he had would be given to him. And the father says, I'm always with you. And so does the older brother come back into the party? Jesus just leaves it. There's no answer. So what do we make of this parable? What do we make of this parable? I have three things I want to talk about what we can do with this parable, how we can make sense of it. And what I want to do is talk about a big picture context, what I'm going to call the kingdom context. Jesus came declaring and teaching that the kingdom of God is here. And so this parable has to relate to the kingdom. But then we're also going to make two points of how you actually enter into that kingdom or stay out of that kingdom. So point number one is Jesus is giving us a kingdom context... And in a sense, retelling the story of Israel. The story of Israel is being retold in this parable. That as you look at the story of Israel from Abraham in Genesis 12 all the way up to Jesus' time, this is a parable that depicts and retells that entire story. See, at this time, Israel, even though they're back in their land, the Jewish people are being occupied and, and governed by Rome. And so, Jewish expectation is that one day a Messiah would come and deliver them. They believe that they were still in exile, even in their own lands. And before Jesus came, in the last 400 years, the people had grown into a nation, they were back in their lands. But they're still being occupied by Gentiles, by people who were not Jewish people. And the story of the prodigal son is this story that Israel has run away from God. They've not obeyed him. They've ran after the other gods. They've ran after all those other things. And now that Jesus is here, he's inviting all of those Jewish people who have run away to come back to him. And yet there has been a small remnant of Jewish people who have actually stayed and obeyed the law. And anyone know who those people are in the Gospels? The scribes and the Pharisees. And they're refusing to actually come to Jesus. What the... Elder brother, what the father is, is a picture of Jesus coming. And Israel, the ones who have run away, he's calling them back into the kingdom that he's coming. And the Jewish people who think they have everything right, he's calling them into this kingdom. And so this parable is a retelling of the story of Israel with God the father sending Jesus to be the one who is calling everyone back to him to come to the kingdom party. To come to the kingdom that is at hands. And in many ways we call this the story of the prodigal son. And it should be the prodigal sons, plural. But in another sense, this is a story about the prodigal God. Anyone know what the word prodigal actually means? It's like extravagant. Sometimes it has the idea of being wasteful. Like you're wasting things. You're being so extravagant that you're just wasting your money. And this is a picture of not just a prodigal son who extravagantly squandered everything, but it's a story of a prodigal God who extravagantly loves everyone. In a sense, Israel could be allowed to sin, to go into worshiping the gods of the other nations, even end up feeding pigs for a pagan master. They could be in Babylon, Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach. But you know what Israel could not do? They could not fall out of the covenant purposes of her God. She could say to her God, I wish you were dead. But God would not respond in kinds. He would bring them out of exile. He'd bring them to the party. So when Israel comes to her senses and returns with all of her heart, there's an astonishing, prodigal, lavish welcome waiting for her. Equally the same generous love is still extended to those who hurts and upsets and cannot at the moment understand how it can possibly be right to welcome the prodigal home. See, Jesus is retelling the story of Israel around himself saying, I am calling everyone back to me for the kingdom party. That's the big picture. The kingdom is here and he is inviting everyone to come. So how do you enter into this kingdom that Jesus is inviting everyone to come into? Well, number two, Jesus marks repentance as the means to come out of exile, to come into the kingdom that he's actually bringing. And church, if you hear nothing else this morning, repentance is the key to life, And the key to the love of God exploding into your life. Without repentance, Jesus says, I can do nothing for you. Number one, repentance is coming to your senses. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, coming to the reality that your life and my life, outside the kingdom of God, Outside the loving arms of a father who is running back to you, your life is empty and futile. And so the question is, when do you regularly come to your senses? When do you regularly repent? Repentance, I want to say, always comes from outside of ourselves. In a sense that sometimes, sometimes someone speaks to you you read something in the Bible, or you find yourself in a place where you are feeding what you would call pigs. See, sometimes God lets you go away so that you can actually have a chance to repent. God actually is loving you in your sin. You know, like when you sin this afternoon, guess who's still with you? Jesus is with you in your sin. And he's right there waiting for you to come to your senses and say, apart from you, my life is empty and actually has no meaning. And you can continue all you want to keep building your life to find meaning. And Jesus says, until you're like the younger son and come to me, your life will have no meaning. You need to come to your senses Repentance is not just coming to your senses, but repentance is first and foremost a recognition that we sin against the goodness of God. You saw the younger brother say twice, I have sinned against God, and then he says, and you. David, in in Psalm chapter 51, he says, I have sinned against you and only you, God, when he committed his adultery with Bathsheba. If you don't see your sin as chiefly and firstly against God, true repentance will never take place. Repentance, for repentance to actually be real, to be true, actually has to be the recognition that you have sinned against a holy God who actually wants you to come to him. We have this statement that we say around redemption quite often is that people only change when the pain of staying the same is greater than changing. Did you catch that? People only change when the pain of staying the same is greater than actually having to change. You change when the circumstances you're in are so uncomfortable that the better way out is to change. However, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that there is a worldly sorrow, a worldly repentance, a worldly change. But there's also a godly sorrow, a godly change, a godly repentance. And so not all change is good change. Not all repentance is actually true repentance. See, I've done lots of marriage counseling In the past. And oftentimes in the marriage counseling, the husband and the wife get caught doing something and they want to change. And why do they want to change? Because they don't want their marriage to fall apart. They want to change because it's uncomfortable and they just want their husband or their wife to be at peace with them. And so, like, the way to be peaceful is for me just to change. Or they can just be like, my life would go better if I would be better, and I know that Christians and godly people are supposed to live like this, so I'm just going to change. See, like all of those types of change, they're fine, they're good, they're just not true change. They're not true repentance, because none of those things I just mentioned actually acknowledge that your sin has been against who? God. All of that change that I just mentioned was all about who? Who? Me, self-centered, self-interested, right behavior. You want your marriage better, so you what? You change. Who's that all about? You. The reality is that not all change is good change. In fact, one old theologian wrote this, a legalistic conviction of sin, I think that's on the next screen, arises from a consideration, a legalistic, so this is like a, a, a not good change arises from a consideration of God's justice chiefly. But a gospel conviction comes from a sense of God's goodness. Do you change because you think God's going to judge you? Or do you change because you think God deeply loves you? He goes on to say, a legal person cries out, I've exasperated a power that is as a roaring lion. I've provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. He's just saying, like, I have arisen a tiger or a lion who's just going to jump at me and devour me. But a gospel-convicted person cries out, I've incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of the dew. I've offended a god That had the deportment or the behavior or the manner of a friend. Please hear this. The fear of hell, the fear of justice, the fear of judgment will never change the fundamental structures of your heart. The only thing that will change the fundamental structures of your heart is love. And when the love of God changes your heart, true repentance comes. True repentance comes when the washing of the love of God comes upon your soul in such a way that you change because you want to honor God and this is the way God has designed life to be when you see that Jesus was the younger brother for you who went through the exile, he's the one who went out and found himself separated from the Father, and he underwent the justice of God for you, when you see him loving you to the death, you will experience true repentance. Repentance is coming to our senses. It's a sinning against the goodness of God, but number three, it can't be earned. let's just be honest, as humans, we're really dumb people. Okay, let's, can we just all agree to that? Like, can we just start right there? We're dumb people. Okay, and here's one way we're really dumb. Me too. Okay, like this isn't just me. We all know that God is the father, that if we just come running back to him, he's going to accept us. True or false? Do we believe that? But as we come running back, we are always like the what? The younger brother who's got the plan. Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to work here. I'm going to go to church 17 times. I'm going to do all these things to prove to the Father that he loves me. You know you don't have to do that, but you keep wanting to do that. Why? Do you understand that reality, that contradiction that's going on in your mind? Do you know why that happens? The crass way of saying it is you're a self righteous SOB. The Christian way to say it is you're just trying to earn your way to God. The reality is is repentance is not earned. Repentance is just coming and running and going to God, not having a plan. Not saying, I'll do this, this, and this, and this to make it up. Not giving money into the offering. Not coming to the church building to do work. Not coming to missional community and praying. Not doing all those things. Sure, those are great and they will nurture and sustain and grow your faith. But that is not how you gain repentance. Repentance is simply running to the Father. And when you run, realize this, the Father is already running to you. How do you enter into this kingdom that Jesus is bringing? By repentance. That this younger brother clearly demonstrates. Number three, how do you stay out of this kingdom? How do you get lost and not ever enter into this kingdom? Number three, Jesus marks self-righteousness as the means to stay in exile and not come into the kingdom that he's coming. Most people... When they read this story, preach the story, focus on the younger brother. And it's true, the younger brother has a lot to teach us. But know this. The younger brother is lost in his wickedness. And he needs to repent of his evil. And he needs to come to God through faith and repentance. But notice this as well. That the older brother is lost as well. Both the younger son and the older son are alienated from the father. In the beginning of the story, the younger son is alienated from the father when he wishes him dead and leaves. He's separated. The older brother is alienated from his father when the party goes on and refuses to come in. Each one of these sons wanted the father's things, but not the father. The younger son said, I want you dead, I want your money. The older son, I will not come into your party because you have disrespected me and not given me what I deserve. And so notice this, both sons are actually lost, and this is a penny that needs to drop in Christianity in your mind very quickly, that you can be lost and separated from the Father by being very, very bad, and you can be separated from the Father by being very, very good. That doesn't make sense. In a Christian context, where you can be lost and separated from the Father by being very, very good. The younger son is lost in his badness, the older son is lost in his goodness. And in the end, it's the younger son, the evil one, who enters into the kingdom, and the older one who gets kicked out, stays out. This goes against everything we've ever believed. We believe that if you're good, you go to church. Right, Joe? This is where all the people have it together. These are the good people. But it gets worse for this older son, and it's because of why he's lost. He's not lost in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. It's not his sin that's keeping him from his father, but it's actually his goodness that's keeping him from the father. Which means there's actually two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. Two ways to control God and control your own life. The first way to control your own life is to be like the younger brother and squander everything. The second way is to be really, really good. And when you're really, really good, all of your morality is just a play to control God. To get from God what you want. You do these things because you think God, in some sense, is this cosmic genie. That if you put in your money of goodness, out will come the blessings. But Christianity is not about a mere form of ex- conformance to uh, external rules. What Jesus is actually teaching is that the motivations of the heart are ultimate. Of course, if you love the Father, you'll obey Him. But why do you obey Him? The elder brother did not obey out of love, but out of greed, out of pride. So how do we get a motivation that's not getting stuff? You look to the younger brother. The younger brother came to his senses and realized where life is, is actually coming back to the father. He knows he deserves nothing. He knows he's incapable of being brought back into the family. And so this all begs a question, and it doesn't beg a question, it all begs this statement that we need to do business with. It says this, the gospel says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I don't know if you caught that distinction, but the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, if I obey, I will be accepted. So the question is, is why do you obey? Think for a moment. What are all the different ways you can say no to ungodly behavior and do right things? You can say no to sin because if I do it, I'll look bad. You can say no to sin because I'll be excluded from the social circles, religious elite I want to belong to. You can say no to sin because God will not give me health, wealth, and happiness. You can say no because God will send me to hell. You can say no because I'll hate myself in the morning and lose all of my self-respect. And virtually, all of these reasons and motivations of your heart are self-centered impulses of your heart to force compliance on an external set of rules, but actually never change your heart. The elder brother is lost in his goodness. And so religion is what we call these people who obey to get the father, not to love the father. To get the father's things, I should say. And so religion, over time, begins to choke out the goodness of the gospel in our lives. Religion or our self-righteousness grows in our heart like, we don't even see how deep the self righteousness in our heart is. The great reformer Martin Luther says the default mode of the human heart is religion, the default mode of the human heart is self righteousness. The default mode of us is trying to prove ourselves and gain and believe that we can do things to earn the Father's love. So, what do we all need? We need a true elder brother. We need an older brother who will accept us into his family. That when we come running back to the Father, Jesus isn't saying, wait, 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 that person right there, he sinned against me a hundred million times. He's not allowed in here. Oh, you're letting him in? I'm not coming. That's not Jesus. Jesus, the true elder brother, invites you into the family. Receives you. And so this parable teaches us a lot about not just stop being bad, but it teaches a lot about stop being good, because you can be lost in both. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.